We know here in this church these verses in Acts chapter 4, after the apostles were threatened uh, because of the healing of a man seated outside of the temple, and they came together after this threatening. It says in verse uh, 15, Acts chapter 4, when they had commanded them to go outside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, and they said, well, what are we going to do with these fellows? This is a miracle. We can't deny that. All of us know this man that's been sitting out of the temple here for many years, probably. And so the sentence was that it spread no further among the people. Verse 17 kind of hinges on what I talked to you about this past Sunday, about envy and jealousy. So they threatened them, verse 17, let's threaten them and tell them not to speak anymore in the name of this man Jesus. So they called them, verse 18, they commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John gave a bold reply, whether it's right in the sight of God to Listen to you more than to God. You can be the judge of that, that we cannot help but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So they threatened them further again, verse 21, and they let them go, finding nothing to punish them for. And uh, they were just probably filled with jealousy and envy because all the people were glorifying God for the man that was healed. How blind can you be? Here's a man that's been outside begging all these years, and you come to worship God, and he's dancing around, and instead of saying, praise the Lord, they say, you, you guys don't need to be teaching in the name of Jesus. I mean, that's how blind people can be. So what we're interested in is when they got together, they lifted their voices up, verse 23 to God, and they prayed, it says in verse 24, they lifted up their voice to God. This is what they said. They said, God, you are the God, verse 24, that made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. And by the mouth of your servant David, you said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? You probably have a footnote there that says that's Psalm 2, which it is. Then they go on quoting this same Psalm 2 in verse 26. The kings of the earth stood up, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his Christ, his Messiah. It is true, they said, just like David said, Against your holy child, Jesus, this is verse 27, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And then they said the grant that we might continue to speak the word with all boldness. And stretch forth your hand and supply the power that we need to do all of these things. For many, many centuries after 
all of this happened in the book of Acts. As the church began to develop its theological positions, they began to have what was called church councils. And in these church councils, they would make rules, uh, make statements that they felt were in line with the Scripture about what the Bible taught concerning certain things. They had a, they had a, a, a council about the nature of Christ. Is Christ man? Uh, is he divine? Is he a combination of the two? Did he become uh, the Christ? And then the Christ spirit left him when he hung on the cross. And he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Believe it or not, there are modern neo-Orthodox theologians that have said that uh, Jesus just thought he was the Messiah. And he was fully anticipating God to intervene uh, while he hung on the cross. And he was uh, uh, shocked and amazed and disappointed. And that's why he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All of these kinds of things have come out of theologians who want to try to destroy the Scripture. So in a council that they had, they said the Scriptures teach that Jesus is both man and God. He is as much man as though he were not God. He is as much God as though he were not man. He is God and man without confusion, without mixture, and all of these things. And they gave all of this theological language. You probably know that First John was written, one reason it was written was to combat Gnosticism, and the Gnostics are various strands of Gnosticism, but they emphasized a certain type of what's called esoteric knowledge. You had to have a special knowledge, kind of like some of our modern Pentecostal friends who say, you know, you've got to have a special kind of prayer and get into a special kind of attitude and a special kind of mood to have what they call the baptism of the Holy Ghost, evidence by speaking in tongues, and all of that. Well, 1 John was written to combat Gnosticism, and that's why 1 John begins with, I'm telling you about, John says, he opens up that epistle, you read it. He says, I'm telling you about a person I have seen, a person I have known, a person I was with privately, someone I have touched. He was really a man but he was also God. The same person that wrote 1 John wrote the Gospel of John. And how does the Gospel of John begin? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was nothing made that was made. And then in verse 14 he says, And that Word that was with God, that was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. So these various councils dealt with different issues. As it went down through the centuries, they finally had a council about 
what was called uh, Arminianism. I don't know if any of you have ever heard, some of you have, I'm sure, Jacob Arminius. Well, Jacob Arminius was a man that challenged what was then held to be orthodox doctrine regarding the will of God, the sovereign will of God. And Jacob Arminius and another fellow named Pelagius, we call that Arminianism and Pelagianism, and those fellows had various takes on the scripture regarding the will of God. Arminius said that man was a sinner, that he fell, that indeed he needed the grace of God to be redeemed, but he retained his will after the fall. He retained his, what, he, what has become to be called free will. Now, you cannot find the phrase free will in Scripture except, as I mentioned last week, over in the Old Testament law books where it talks about if you're going to give something over and above what the law required, then you can do that Many translations say, of your own free will, okay? Which means nobody will put a gun to your head and tell you to do it. You're doing it of your own will. You're doing it voluntarily. So maybe I will bring you some lessons on some of those things because it's very interesting. And what is now acceptable in 2023, by probably, I'm just guessing here, I'd say over 80-90% of Christian believers in America now endorse what was condemned as heresy by that church council. It was condemned as heresy, and now it's embraced as what the Scriptures teach. So we can't answer, I can't answer all the questions in these little 45-minute studies that we're having, but we can make a little dent and give you some things to think about. So what I want you to understand is these things can be complicated. I understand that. And I say the only way you're going to be able to really begin to understand some of it is by faith. And you have to believe that the Bible is the Word of God. You can't go to the Scripture to see what it says that you've already made up your mind that you believe. That's what most of us do. We go to the Scripture to see what it backs up. We've already made up our mind that we believe. You have to throw that away, and you have to go to the Scripture and say, what does God's Word say? Even if I can't logically reconcile it with my thinking, if I can't put it together in a neat little package, it's so if God said it. So you've heard me say many times, many of you who have been here for years, and some of you haven't been here for years, I have said that the old saying that became kind of popular in the 80s, and the 90s, there was an evangelist or a preacher that said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I said, that is not true. The truth is, if God said it, that settles it, doesn't make any difference whether you believe it or not. That's the truth of the matter. For the long time, longest time in the Western world, in the English world, tables such as your kitchen table were square or 
rectangle. And participants sat at those tables according to rank. Think about it now. You got a long rectangular table or you got a square table. Okay. But according to historians, the legendary Knights of the Round Table, Round Table, were first introduced in a fellow called Geoffrey of Monmouth's book called The History of the Kings of Britain in 1136. That's a long time ago. The Round Table is King Arthur's famed table in the Arthurian period, period of Arthur, around which he and his knights congregated. Now, the significance of this round table is obvious. A round table has no head. So a round table suggests that everyone who sits there has an equal status. You see, up till that time, they had these long tables, and the king sat down at the end of the table. And everybody else sat up according to rank. So King Arthur, as the legend goes, he introduces this round table. And so everybody sits around the round table. It doesn't have a, have a head. And so it suggests that everybody is Equal. So the story goes that when they went in to sit down one day, I don't know if it was the first time they sat down because they, we don't really think about tables. But for centuries and centuries, tables were square or rectangle. Just like the wheel, you know, <laughs> about the invention of the wheel. And so as the legend goes, when the king and his knights sat down at the round table, one of the knights said... Does this mean that we are all equal? And the king replied, yes, but some of us are more equal than others. Now, in like manner, mankind, human beings, are like God, but they're not equal to God in any way. The Bible is very clear. Let me read this to you. It's found in Genesis chapter 1. And it says, On the sixth day, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his image, in the image of God, created he him, male and female, created he them. Now three times in those verses, we read that God created man in his image. And as I understand that Hebrew word, is Salem Elohim. And it's from a root that means shadow. Shadow. And then we are told in that same verse that man was made after the likeness of God. 
Now let me read it to you again, verse 26. Let us make man in our image, comma, after our likeness. Well, in the English, you might think, what's the difference between image and likeness? I looked up that word likeness. It is a word that means similitude. So part of what is intended by this language is spelled out in that 26th verse because he says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And that brings to mind what David said in Psalm 8. Listen to the words of David. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you should visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. So when God said, I'm going to make man to be like me, I'm going to make him in my image after my likeness, part of that means that man was like God in that he had dominion over all the earth. He was to be God's viceroy. He was to be God's representative. He was to rule the earth as unto the Lord. So we're told that God made man in his image and his likeness. Now the Lord Jesus tells us, as well as all the prophets and the apostles, Jesus tells us in John chapter 4 and in verse 24 that God is spirit. God is spirit. I'm thinking now about this word image and likeness. God is spirit. We know that the words that are translated image and likeness do not have reference primarily to the physical. That is, God in his original divine essence does not have a body. He is spirit. So we're not like God in a physical sense, but in a moral sense, a spiritual sense, an intellectual sense. So let me give you three suggestions. Man is like God. Remember that round table? And Arthur said, yeah, we're all equal, but some of us are more equal than others. So man is made in the image of God like God, but he's not God. Number one, man has dominion over the earth and all things in it. He's like God in that way. God has dominion over all the universe. And man is supposed to have dominion over the earth and all things in it. Number two, man is like God in that he is a triune being. He's made up of body and of soul and of spirit. The Bible says that God is Father and He's Son and He's Holy Spirit. Number three, being like God or made in the image of God means that man is a rational creature. 
He's able to reason. He possesses the power of volition. God is not a non-personal force or a demiurge or mere energy, but he is a person. He is a personality. It may help us to understand man as the image bearer of God. His image is stamped upon human beings and not upon any other created thing. God is not the father of worms. He is not the father of lions and tigers and dogs and cats and snakes. He is only considered to be the father of human beings, especially those who are redeemed. All right, now, let's think about, for just a minute, volition. Volition and will. I told you about some of those church councils. Well, there was a church council, as I intimated, the, the burden of which was to discuss the will of God and the will of man. So a lot has been said about this over the centuries. As time went on and people had questions about this, that, and the other, these church councils kind of ruled on those things, and it became the orthodox teaching according to the Scripture. Those things, those uh, councils, and later those confessions of faith, that's not what we use to prove truth. But they help clarify and qualify the truth by succinctly stating what they think the Scriptures teach and then giving you Scriptural references to look these things up. So one of the issues, and this is what we're talking about, what I'm talking to you about in these studies right now on uh, Tuesday evenings, is the will of man and the will of God. So we have two words that we use often. One word is volition, and the other word is will. Volition is the virtue that describes the use of willpower. It is the faculty of using one's will, of acting on demand, and this is important, acting on demand with intention. With intention. You have, you intend to do certain things, and you are able to do that because you possess volition. Willpower can be distinguished from volition. Willpower is the conscious control which we exert to do or not do something. So I might say it this way. God has given us the gift of volition which is expressed through the will. Okay? God has given us the gift of volition which is expressed through the will. Now, we read a moment ago in Acts chapter 4 that the apostle was quoting Psalm 2. And he said, just like David said, the kings of the earth and the rulers came together and took counsel against the Lord and against his Christ. And then he starts naming people. He said, it's true against your holy child Jesus. And he names who? He names Herod. He named Pontius Pilate. He, name, he names who? The Jewish people. He names the Gentiles, the Roman people. And of course, we could name some others. 
we could name Judas Iscariot. Let's turn back over. Are you still in Acts 4? Okay, look here. Verse 27, of a truth. We would say it this way. It is true. It is true, just like David said in verses 25 and 26 when he starts quoting David, Acts chapter 4. In verse 27, he says, it's true against your holy child, Jesus, whom you anointed. The word Messiah means the anointed one. The word Christ is from the Greek, and it means the same thing as Messiah, which is from the Hebrew, the anointed one. David said, my cup runneth over, he anointeth my head with oil, and my cup runneth over. In the New Testament, oil is a picture of the pouring out of the Spirit. So he said, it's true against your holy child Jesus, whom you anointed as the Messiah, Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. Now, you know, if you could have ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and anybody else to interview Mr. Herod or Mr. Pilate or the Jewish council that turned him over to the Romans, they would all tell you that they acted according to their own will. They acted according to their own volition. They would tell you that nobody forced them to do that. They didn't have some counsel at night whereby somebody said, if you don't condemn this Jesus guy, we're going to make sure that you're put out of power. There was nothing of that going on like goes on in Washington, D.C. all the time. So that when they make decisions up there, you can be sure that there's something in it for somebody somewhere. There's some pressure somewhere. There was none of that. They exercised their wills. Okay? They exercised the gift of their volition. They did what they wanted to do. But then the very next statement says in verse 28, what they did was what God's hand and God's counsel, verse 28, determined. Very strong word. Determined before to be done. So see, here's the rub. Here's man exercising his will. Here's God's will being done. Nobody forced them to do anything. It was predicted centuries before in Psalm 2 that they would do it. And they did it. And they did it freely. They used their gift of volition to do it. They condemned God's Son. And when they did, they fulfilled God's will. You realize that if Jesus had stumped his toe and fell, fell off a cliff and died, that he wouldn't be the Savior. He has to die in a certain way. He has to be crucified because that's what the prophet said. The Messiah would come into the world and he would die on a cross as a substitute that he would freely of his will give himself up into the hands of men. You realize that Jesus, if he is who he said he is, and we believe he is, he could have freed himself at any time from them. You remember he told his disciples, when one of them drew out, it was Peter, wasn't it? Drew out a sword and cut off the servant of the high priest's ear when they came out to arrest Jesus. 
And he said, put up your sword. He said, those that live by the sword will die by the sword. And he said, don't you know I could call legions of angels for my father in heaven right now and deliver me? He said that. That's in your Bible. But he said, if I do that, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled? He said to the disciples when they were at the Last Supper, he said, one of you shall betray me. One of my old preacher friends said, every one of them said, is it I except the one who did it? Judas Iscariot. Do you realize that there are scriptures in the Old Testament that say, he that dips his hand in the dish with me will betray me centuries before Judas Iscariot was ever born. And Jesus said, woe unto that man. He said, it is impossible that, but that offenses will come in the world, but woe unto that man by whom this offense comes. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. That's what Jesus said. And what did Judas do? Well, when he was there, it says Satan entered into him and he went out and carried out his little plan, getting 30 pieces of silver. Bible names exactly how many pieces of silver the Christ was going to be betrayed for. 30 pieces of silver. The Bible talks about the cloak of Christ being torn, which it was. They gambled over his, uh, his cloak or not being torn, rather. The Bible says that not a bone of his body would be broken there are bunches of prophecies that were fulfilled. And in every one of these situations, every man was acting freely according to his own volition. And yet, the will of God was fulfilled. Now, did you see that? You see, I gave you a little taste of the philosophers last week. They can't solve this problem. They've tried to. That's the little, little story I told you about the irresistible force and the immovable. And when the irresistible meets the immovable, something's got to give. If the immovable moves, when it's confronted with the irresistible force, it's not immovable. If the irresistible force can't overcome the immovable, it's not irresistible. You can conceive of an irresistible force and you can conceive of something that won't move, but you can't conceive of the two of them meeting together at the same time and fulfilling the laws of physics. You can't do that. Now, theologians sometimes escape behind hard things by using, first of all, they talk about a paradox. A paradox is something that appears at first to be contradictory. This is true and this is true. You say, how can that be? How can they both be true? Well, a paradox is something that appears to be contradictory, but when you further examine it, you're able to reconcile it in your mind. But then beyond that, they talk about an antinomy. And an antinomy is this is true and that's true, and it can't be reconciled in your mind. And we've come up with all kinds of illustrations to try to explain that. Silly things like, for example, if you stand in the middle of a railroad track and you see these two rails and you look way down there, they appear to what? They appear to come together, right? But if you go down that way 10 miles, you see they didn't come together. <laughs> and so some men have said, well, 
you know, the will of man and the will of God is kind of like those railroad tracks. They just appear to be separated, but when you get out there in eternity, they come together. No, if they like railroad tracks, they never come together. And you can't put them together. They're always going to be parallel. So what we're saying is the scriptures teach that God made man with volition. And I told you I tried to distinguish volition describes the use of willpower. It's the faculty of using one's will and acting on demand with intention. But willpower is the conscious control of your volition. Well, you decide to do something or you decide not to do something and you do it with intent. So going back to the analogy of the round table, we are like God, created in the image of God, but we're not God. That was the lie that the devil sold to Adam and Eve. In the day you eat of this fruit, you will be Little gods, you'll be in the driver's seat. You'll exercise. You see, men today say, well, Adam and Eve had volition. They had, and this is why I hate, because you have to stop and define it every time. I hate to use the term free will, because that's not Bible language. All people mean by that is they mean that you have a will, and you can choose to do this, or you can choose not to do it. Right? Anybody would be a fool that denied that man doesn't have volition. I suppose none of you are here tonight against your will. I suppose you're here because you want to be here. So you've exercised your volition. There's no question that Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles, the people of Israel, they all did what they wanted to do. There's no question about that. But they did the will of God. So the issue is, can the will of God be done and the will of man be done at the same time? Well, of course. So people want to take the will of man and make it equal with God. They want to say that uh, the will of man is like the, the object that can't be moved and the will of God is like the irresistible force. But I'm trying to tell you that man is not God. He may be like God. He may be made in the image of God. God may have gifted him with volition, but he is not God. Because some are more equal than others. And God is more equal than human beings are. So, what is meant in most cases, at least we can get this far tonight, what is meant in most cases when men talk about and try to give you an argument and to get upset about free will? I'm going to try to show you next week that man does have a will. He does use his will. But his will is extremely limited. Extremely limited. And I'll talk to you about that next week. But for tonight... Let me tell you this, that most of the time when men are talking about free will, they, they are mean by that, that man is autonomous. Man is autonomous. You remember that it was Lucifer who wanted to be like God. And then I read to you from Genesis 1, 26, that men were created like 
God, in the image of God. Lucifer sold Eve on the idea that she could be like God when she was already like God. She was like God in some sense because he created her in his image and in his likeness. But what he's doing is he's dealing with the will thing, the volition thing. And he's saying you can be like God if you exercise your volition over against the will of God. He encouraged Eve to use her volition to choose what God had forbidden, thus asserting her independence and her, quote, free will. Now, God is independent of all things in the sense that he does not need anything outside of himself to be what he is, which is God, right? But human beings can never be independent in that sense. This is the heart of the matter regarding the battle of free will and God's will. So, let me go back and close with an observation. Having volition, having the gift of being able to make choices, being able to exercise your volition, willpower, does not mean autonomy. All right, now, what is an automobile? All of you got here tonight with an automobile. Okay, look up that word. Auto means self and mobile means to move. So an automobile is a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing that moves itself if you got gas in it. <laughs> it moves itself. All right, now, now autonomy comes from two words, auto, which means self, and namos, which means law. So autonomous means self-law. A law unto myself. That's what Lucifer was getting at with Adam and Eve. You don't need God to tell you. You are, can be a law unto yourself. You can be autonomous. Now, in the Garden of Eden, and this is a whole other study, Adam and Eve had a freedom and a liberty that we don't have today. And I intend to try to talk to you about that uh, in our next study. The unbelieving philosophers and theologians down through the centuries have argued that to be truly free, we have to have absolute freedom. We have to have autonomy, meaning that we cannot, do not, must not, have to have accountability to anyone outside ourselves. That is, to be truly free, I must be able to rule myself with no interference from anything or anyone else outside myself. This means that there's no room for a God who is sovereign and omnipotent over all things, and especially over me. 
I think I mentioned to you a, a, a philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre. He said that both human freedom and divine sovereignty cannot coexist in the same universe. He said you got that problem of the immovable object and the irresistible force. Well, I'll tell you what you do. You use your volition to live 150 years. You just go ahead and use your volition and you live 150 or you live as long as they did when God first made men and live hundreds of years. Go ahead and use your volition to do that. You see, you don't have the willpower to will that. You have a will. You can choose. But there's some things that you can choose, but you can't do. There's nothing that God chooses that he can't do. You realize that God cannot create another God. You know, people say there's nothing God can't do. Well, there are some things he can't do. He cannot create another God. You know why? I give you a lot of reasons, but i just give you one reason tonight as we close. Because any God that he created would be a creature, would be a created God and would not be everlasting, and would not be infinite. Only God is infinite. Only God never had a beginning. So anything he creates would have a beginning. So he can't create another God. There's only one God. And you know, we can't figure out life. We don't know how we're here, why we're here, anything. We get really thinking about things, but I can tell you this. It happened by design. We know that. There's design in the universe. There must be a designer. If there's being in the universe, there must be a being who created that. If there's purpose in the universe, there must be a purpose behind the universe. There must be a God who had a purpose in creating the universe. So next week, I'm going to tell you why we don't have the same volition and have the same will, power, and the same freedom that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. Okay?